0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a series, talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. All of us who call ourselves animal activists or animal advocates share a common concern, a concern for animals and the suffering caused by humans on animals. Chances are, if you're listening to the show, you're working in your own way to reduce animal suffering on this planet. Maybe you rescued your last dog or cat from a shelter or rescue organization, or perhaps you signed a petition to stop the cruel practice of seal hunting, or you made a conscious decision to try and remove meat products from your diet. Whether you realize it or not, if you took any one of these or countless other actions to help an animal or animals, you are part of the animal welfare movement. Have you ever wondered when the animal welfare and animal rights movements began, or what precipitated the existence of animal advocacy? Despite tremendous growth in animal advocacy throughout the years, this belief that animals exist for human use dates back tens of thousands of years. Like any belief system, it's deeply rooted in our history and culture and cannot be changed overnight. Eight to ten thousand years ago, people first began the practice of herding, significantly changing the relationship to humans. Humans began owning and confining animals such as sheep and goats for food. 2,000 years after that, people started owning cows. Domestication of animals for food was an essential element in the progress of human civilization. Millennia later, Mahatma Gandhi, the leader of India's non-violence independence movement, proclaimed, "...the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated." But before Gandhi, Enlightenment-era philosophers offered their own formulations about animals and society. And I'll just touch upon a few of them here. We'll dive into this in a bit more detail in an upcoming show. Well-known philosophers Immanuel Kant and Rene Descartes both theorized that animals did not have equal consideration with humans because animals lacked consciousness, reason, and autonomy. Kant and Descartes subscribe to what is known as indirect theories—theories that have at their basis the requirement that one should not harm animals, but only because doing so indirectly does harm to a human being's morality. 17th century philosopher Descartes, who is often referred to as the father of modern philosophy, believed animals could not reason and were incapable of feeling pain. They were akin to mechanical robots who were not deserving of compassion like humans. Emmanuel Kant's work has been discussed throughout animal advocacy movements to this day. While he did not believe that humans had any ethical obligation to animals, he felt cruelty should be avoided simply because cruelty toward animals would lead to the development of cruel habits that humans would inflict on one another. Possibly the most animal-friendly viewpoint was that of the 19th century philosopher John Stuart Mill. He believed the right action was that which minimized pain and suffering and maximized pleasure for everyone involved, referred to as utilitarianism. His philosophy applied to humans as well as non-human animals. As an example, a utilitarian might claim that the treatment of millions of experimental laboratory animals is okay if billions of people benefit from it by gaining better health. Given the recent visibility of animal rights issues in media and law, one might think the animal rights movement was new. However, 2,500 years ago and further back in history, there are recorded cases of respected people urging others to show compassion for animals. Since its earliest recordings, the animal rights movement has always been tied in with vegan living as a means of eliminating or minimizing cruelty to animals. The spiritual teachers of India, who rejected the herding culture, were the earliest animal activists that we know of today. They committed to minimizing cruelty by interfering with animals as little as possible and allowing them to live out their lives as natural beings. They taught and practiced a vegan lifestyle. The most prominent of these would be Mahavir, a significant teacher in the Jain tradition, and the Buddha, both of whom taught their students compassion through meatless living. Both Jainism, which is traditionally known as Jain Dharma, an ancient Indian religion, and Buddhism, which encompasses a variety of traditions, beliefs, and spiritual practices primarily based on original teachings of the Buddha, taught and practiced the teaching and understanding of Ahimsa, Ahimsa is a consciousness of nonviolence. The essential belief is that violence toward any living beings is unethical and brings suffering to the victim, the perpetrator, and society. It's inspired by the premise that all living beings have the spark of the divine spiritual energy, and therefore to hurt another being is to hurt oneself. Ahimsa has been related to the belief that violence has karmic consequences. Both Jain and Buddhism practiced nonviolence. Adherents of these practices were not permitted to own animals or harm animals. The eighteen sixties is when organized animal protection really began in America. Citizens launched independent nonprofit societies for the protection of cruelty to animals, SPCAs, in several cities. However, unfortunately, after World War I, many of these initiatives lost momentum. Animal protection saw a revival following World War II. Treatment and use of animals began to come under greater scrutiny. Ideas about what had always been regarded as humane treatment of animals started being challenged. Once again, attitudes about the relationship between humans and non-human animals began to change. In the mid to late 1940s, scientific institutions had turned to municipal shelters to get cheap dogs and cats for research. In fact, scientific institutions devoted effort to get animal procurement laws passed, allowing them to gain access to animals from municipally owned shelters. These laws usually passed without difficulty. In the early 1950s, the animal rights movement took on one primary cause, the issue of pound seizure, which was rooted in existing animal shelter principles and policies. In pound seizure, dog and cats in shelters were sold or released for use in research. Animal advocates took issue with the increase in amounts of money spent on biomedical research, which in turn increased the demand of laboratory animals, many of which came from shelters. Most local Humane Society officials felt that forcing organizations to provide animals for research violated their mission and ethics. However, leaders within the American Humane Association tried to negotiate with the biomedical research community rather than outright oppose them. This was likely because some key management positions in the American Humane Association were also salaried staff executive positions, so there was some conflict of interest. Salaried executives had an interest in maintaining their jobs, which meant not making themselves controversial figures in the communities they served. This fueled anger among supporters of the American Humane Association and caused discord within the organization. Ultimately, the American Humane Association backed away from this issue altogether. In 1951, the Animal Welfare Institute was formed, and in 1954, the Humane Society of the United States was created. Interestingly, both of these organizations were formed by people who were formerly associated with the American Humane Association. The many social justice movements of the 1960s and 1970s paved the way for the evolution of the animal rights movement, which then developed into two different approaches to animal rights, the utilitarian way of thinking and the rights theory approach. The 1975 publication of utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer's controversial book, Animal Liberation, again changed the conversation about human treatment of animals. It impacted what people ate, what they wore, and how humans perceived animals. Singer argued all creatures have a right to, quote, equal consideration because they can suffer. In the book, he writes about the cruel practices used in factory farming and the horrors perpetrated on animals used for laboratory testing. Speciesism is the term Singer used in his book to describe the exploitation of animals. It refers to an attitude of bias against a bean because of the species to which it belongs. He argues that it is discrimination no different from racism or sexism. Essentially, it allows humans to view animals as inferior, and in doing so, justifies regarding animals not as individuals, but as objects and means to fulfill our human desires. Many consider Singer's book the benchmark, or Bible, of the animal rights movement and the foundation upon which much of the movement's ideas are based. However, another branch of animal activists believe animal liberation's utilitarian viewpoint was too conservative, In 1983, philosopher Tom Reagan applied deontology, a branch of philosophy that explores moral duty to animals. In his view, any being that is a subject of a life is a being that has inherent value. Reagan's book, The Case for Animal Rights, took the position that animals possess intrinsic moral rights as individuals with complex feelings and experiences that extend beyond their ability to suffer. To this day, the book is still considered a classic of moral philosophy. With the 1990s came the internet, which made it vastly easier for animal advocates to connect with one another, form groups, advocate, and network animals in shelters and rescue groups. Transport groups could easily connect shelter animals in one state with prospective loving homes in another. A cute video of a prancing baby goat at a small sanctuary could be viewed by millions worldwide. Anyone, anywhere, could join in and help the cause even from their own homes. However, as with every other change in society, it has come with a downside. The hyper-connected internet world has made it easier for people who are looking to acquire free or cheap animals to sell, abuse, and fight, for game hunters to organize, and for videos depicting animal abuse to be shared. But it's essential to reflect on how much has been gained throughout the centuries. Animals now have their place, not only in our homes, hearts, and families, but continue to gain protection and rights in the legal system. Nonprofit animal welfare and animal rights groups have proliferated, from barebones locally acting ones to national and international complex corporate organizations. The Animal Welfare Act and the Endangered Species Act are cornerstones and provide broad protections, although not nearly broad enough, for innumerable animals. Private ownership of exotic animals is restricted, And more and more cities have banned traveling circuses which use animals. Courses in animal law have become commonplace in law schools. I can go on. Cruelty-free cosmetics are highly sought by consumers and will soon be the standard worldwide. Research methods which avoid the use and abuse of animals are coming online and becoming increasingly accepted as better and less expensive. The explosion of tasty and healthful plant-based food items, both in the market and in restaurants, is huge and permits anyone to easily begin eating fewer animal products. The dog and cat overpopulation problem, with its attendant euthanasia of unwanted animals, is almost licked. Most dog racing tracks have closed. The cruelty of horse racing has finally been exposed. And many more. Listeners know there's still so much work to do, but now is a perfect time to get involved and take action, or at least to do a little more than you're already doing. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. Hi, this is Dr. Lori with your Animals Today Minute featuring one of my favorites, the cheetah. These speedy carnivores can reach 70 miles per hour as they hunt their preferred prey, small antelopes. Cheetahs use their long muscular tail like a rudder and a stabilizer, permitting quick turns at high speeds. Cheetahs have about 2,000 small round spots, each animal with its unique pattern, which allows observers and scientists to identify them. Their characteristic dark tear streaks are thought to aid their vision by reducing glare. Unfortunately, they are Africa's most endangered big cat, with only about 10,000 remaining in the wild. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute. Welcome back to the show. Almost every community has an animal shelter or two nearby. And chances are you've visited a shelter to adopt one or more dogs or cats. But have you ever wondered about the early animal shelters? Like, what was the first animal shelter in the U.S., and what did it do? I want to welcome back to the program Kate Kelly, author, historian, and media personality. She runs a couple of websites, including America Comes Alive.
1: Hey, Kate. Thank you very much, Lori. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Kate, reading your piece about the first animal shelter in the United States, I think I have a new heroine in the world of animal welfare, Carolyn Earl White. Yes. Who was Carolyn Earl White, and what was her interest in animal welfare?
1: You know, she was a very fortunate woman of the 19th century, because usually young women didn't exactly get to follow their knows with what interested them. But Carolyn was born to a well to do Quaker family in Philadelphia. And as as you may or may not know, Quakers were very politically active for the most part. And they were also just more open to the idea of of education for girls and that sort of thing. So so Carolyn was unusual for her time but not for her, her religion and, and that sort of thing. And one of the things that we don't think about, but, but she would have been a little girl in about the 18, you know, early 1840s. She was born in 1833. And one of the things that bothered her enormously was walking down the street and seeing the wagons and the wagon owners beating or in in some way really mistreating their horses or mules these were beasts of burden the men needed them to do their work in order to make their deliveries through town and that sort of thing and if they felt that the animal wasn't performing up to what they needed, they would beat them, they would do any kind of thing they could do, yelling, throwing them things at them, and that sort of thing. And it really bothered Caroline to the point that she would be just horrified and would then try to avoid those streets because she remembered a particular scene with uh, you know some sort of animal abuse happening. Yeah. So what was amazing was that she was able to live a life that could go on and, and figure out a solution. To that sort of problem.
0: So, what did she do?
1: Well, she had, by this time, she had gone on, she had married, and the fellow she married was out of her religion. He was Catholic, he was an attorney, but he was also very open minded, and he supported her in her serious belief in animal rights. And so he became aware that uh, Henry Berg in New York City was forming the the American Society to, for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And so he suggested to his wife that she should go up and meet with Henry Berg. So she did. And so she came back to Philadelphia and began to set up the Pennsylvania Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Mm. She was soon joined by another fellow who was very interested in the cause, and his name was Colonel Richard Muckle, Muckle, and they worked together to to work on this organization. When the uh, agreement, you know, the legal agreement had to be drawn up for the society, uh, Carolyn inv- invited her husband to do the legal work. And when they specified the board of directors, her husband was on the board of directors, and so was Colonel Muckle but she was not. Now, nothing is written about whether that upset her, but it was certainly an item of the day, that women could participate and be active, but they couldn't do something like be in a board position. So whether she was offended by that or not, we will never know, but today, we certainly would be.
0: That's so interesting. So she's not even allowed to serve on the board of the organization that she started, being that she's a woman. And yet it grew very fast, didn't it?
1: Yes, it did. That organization started growing and she decided to fill another need, which was that in 1869, she started the Women's PSPCA. It later became known as the Women's Humane Society. And that was actually the organization that that offered the animal refuge, which is what she called it. She was particularly interested in small animals, um, first dogs, stray dogs, and you know, in that day, again, we have to think about what it was like at the time. There were there was no rabies um, vaccine, so animals were very likely to have rabies, and so they were a danger to each other and also. To humans, if if there were too many or if they bit someone, and they also just had pretty much free reign of of any community. There was no leash law. They would have been guard dogs, so they would have been important to families, but there would not have been a lot of control of them, and also there would have been no spaying. So there were lots and lots of puppies. So she started this women's refuge and set it up in Bensalem, Pennsylvania, and offered a place to to bring stray animals and and was very successful in her effort at at taking care of that matter. And people did bring animals, and they were able to run the dog catcher version of their organization where they would would pick up stray animals, and and so she really did fill a need uh, in that way. They went on from that standpoint to fill another Need, and that was that she got a phone call running this organization, and the doctor said, You know, we're doing a lot of medical testing here, and if you would donate some of your extra dogs to us, we would really appreciate it. And with that, <laughs> Caroline had another cause, which was forming the anti-vivisection society. So she formed the this was a very active organization in London before it was in America, but she was the one that first formed that organization that really is is one that still exists today to observe and prevent animals from being test subjects on on different things from makeup and and medicines and that sort of thing. So so she started that as well and you just look at her life and you think wow, she did so much and just by rolling from one experience to another and seeing a need she had all of these things that she was able to to formulate and things that are still with us today
0: so carolyn earl white founded the first animal shelter she championed other causes like you mentioned medical testing on animals and she also was involved in the fight against the abuse of alcohol is that correct
1: Yes, she felt as though a lot of animal abuse uh, um, was because men were drinking too much, and so she started establishing water fountains, figuring if you could give free options for people to drink something else, maybe they wouldn't imbibe as much as they did. The the water fountains were multi-purpose in the sense that there would also be a trough for. You know, animal—I mean, for horses or mules or dogs—so that was also a good thing. Whether or not she accomplished the drop in animal abuse by trying to prevent men from drinking as much is certainly nothing that has been proven or or written about. But it was an interesting theory, and of course, you know, lots of people went on to be active with the prohibition movement. So she certainly was not alone in her thinking. But this was also an era when, well, I guess we still have cockfights and and they had something called dog baiting where an animal would be tied up so that other animals could attack them and and she just felt as though all those forms of entertainment were particularly enjoyed by men who have drinking too much kate
0: kelly i'm really glad you brought this to our attention carolyn earl white is an amazing woman and more people should know about her work as a pioneer in animal welfare thank you very much for coming on the show
1: I was delighted to be with you. Thank you.
0: I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals, now in our 12th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support.
2: Almost uh, conventional wisdom that having a pet can benefit the health and well being of people by elevating mood, encouraging pet owners to move more, uh, improving their physical health, and even easing psychiatric conditions. It's sort of a feel good phenomenon, and pet related industries and nonprofits alike can be seen promoting this concept. They point to a body of public research to make their claims, but how good is that research? I want to welcome back psychologist Hal Herzog, professor emeritus at Western Carolina University. His Psychology Today blog is called Animals and Us, and in it he covers a wide range of really interesting topics, so I invite you to go visit him there. Welcome, Hal. Well,
3: nice to talk again, Peter. This is this is great, and I'm really, really happy to be uh, back on the podcast.
2: We're really glad to speak with you again. It's been a few years. I really wanted to talk about one of your recent posts where you uh, posed that question does Having Pets Really Make You Healthier? And then there's this thing uh, called the pet effect. Let's start with that. What's the pet effect? And uh, what would you like to tell us about your, your article?
3: Well, the pet, the pet effect is uh, the idea, which is being promoted widely by the pet products industry, that getting a pet, pet will cause you to have better physical and mental health. And uh, certainly, we all tend to want to believe that. Those of us that are pet owners and pet lovers, we all want to believe and do believe from our own experience, oftentimes, that our pets, uh, you know, are good for us. Uh, that they uh, that they benefit, for example, by you know we take the dogs for walks, or uh, we we have psychological benefits, you know, from playing with them, or just or just from petting from petting them. But the question is, is you know, how good is the science really backing up this idea? It's one thing to believe our uh,
2: two intuitions, but the uh, science is sort of a different a different story sometimes. So you looked at a lot of uh, published papers and uh, wrote about them.
3: Yeah, what I did, it's interesting. I, I originally got interested in this when I was working on a book that I wrote on human-animal interactions. And I had never really, you know, wanted to study uh, human-pet relationships because there were other people that were other researchers were doing that. And I was sort of interested in other areas of human-animal interactions. But for this book, I I needed to have a chapter where I talked about you know, pets and the impact of that's on human health, which I absolutely believed at the time because I know people that were doing research in the area. But so I started collecting all the studies that I could find on uh, the, the health benefits of pet ownership, and I was pretty shocked by what I found. And uh, to, to make a uh, you know, to, you know, to summarize very quickly, uh, my organizing scheme in writing this chapter was basically to you know, acquire reprints, all the reprints I could find, and put them in various piles on my floor. In my office, and so I had uh, one pile of reprints uh, that that found, as I expected, that pets were good for people. That uh, pets were good for people's health and their psychological well-being, um, the positive pet effect. And sure enough, I found papers that um, you know, pet you know, people with pets had were more likely to survive after heart attacks. That they had lower blood pressure, lower cholesterol levels. Um, they had better general health. They were less lonely. They had lower rates of depression. You know, so on and so forth. But the but then I started uncovering these articles that found no pet effect, uh, no effect at all, no difference at all between pet owners and non-owners on the same variables: blood pressure, heart rate, uh, incidence of illness, psychological distress, anxiety, loneliness, you know, mental health, and stuff like that. No differences. And then I had another another pile of group friends that found pet owners were worse off. That they had, they were more likely to uh, die following a heart attack. That they had higher blood pressure. That they were lonelier. That they were more depressed. That they were more cloned to panic attacks. That they had they slept less well. They were more likely to have insomnia. And so I be- then began to take a more systematic look at this. And what I concluded with this pet effect idea. Is presently more a hypothesis that we sort of want to believe than one that is actually supported by the consensus of scientific results.
2: Most of our listeners would find that surprising because we're, we're so indoctrinated into the veracity of, of this. We see so many uh, things in the popular press. In fact, I saw a statistic reporting a vast majority of family practice doctors uh, believing the positive value of this pet effect, right?
3: Yes, I saw that study, and uh, I think it was 70 or 80 percent said that they, uh, they, they they did believe in the pet effect, and a substantial number said that they sometimes, or would consider prescribing page, uh, pets for their patients that were having certain types of uh, you know certain certain types of disorders. Yeah. So I, I you know I was sort of shocked by that because because to me it's it's one thing for us to want to believe. Uh, you know, in the power of pets to uh, you know to, to make us healthier and happier people, but and, and that's fine for us to believe that. But if we're going to make medical claims and if doctors are going to talk about prescribing pets for for their patients, that sets a higher bar. Furthermore, pets are expensive. You know, it, it costs on average about $10,000 uh, for a, over the lifespan of a dog or a cat. So if we had a dog, you know, imagine a drug that's going to cost you, you know, $10,000 you know, for, let's say, uh, you know, 10 years of, of, of a treatment. And furthermore, there's some downsides of pet ownership. For example, uh, in the United States, about 85,000 people a year are taken to hospital emergency rooms because they trip over their pet. Oh. And for some of this, this is life-changing. You know, they'll break their leg or they'll break, break their hip. So there's side effects of pets as a, as, as a form of, of, of medicine, you know?
2: You mentioned your three piles of uh, study results. Can you comment a little bit about the design of these studies and whether you think they were good quality studies? That's a, uh, that's a great question. And almost all of
3: these studies, this, the studies on the pet effects, almost all of those are what are called correlational studies. What they do is they compare pet owners with non-owners and they may have information on different types of pets uh, and they may have you know focus on certain groups for example you know people that are older Um, none of these studies are actual experiments there's been only one study that was an actual experiment where people were given pets and followed up long term to see if they were, uh, if the PETs made any difference. In this case, it was in cardiovascular responses to stress. One study out of the the dozens and dozens of studies on the the PET effect. Mm -hmm. So almost all of these are correlation. And you may remember from when you took a statistics class back when you were in college or maybe math class in high school that they tried to drum in your head that correlation does not imply causality. And that's one of the biggest problems. If we call, if we, let's take, for example, a study that was done by the RAND Corporation. Yeah. And this RAND Corporation found, you know, as other studies have found, that pet owners were better off. Uh, they had better general physical health. And they also uh, had better had better mental health. But what the Rand Corporation this was a large study, uh, random sample of, of of Californians. But they also found that pet owners were better off in other ways as well. That would be related to health. So, for example, they were wealthier, they were younger, they were more likely to be married and living in relationships. They were more likely to be homeowners. Uh, they were less likely to uh, to be members of uh, ethnic. Ethnic groups or racial groups that uh, you know, you, you know that, that are associated with socioeconomic classes, and uh, so they tend, they tend to be wider. And all these things are associated with you know with, with better health outcomes. And so you know my argument is that yeah, pet owners are better off you know than than the average person or a poor person. But so are people that own own you know Mercedes Benz's. Yeah, they're better they're better off too. So so the problem is you know you know what can we conclude about the. the the pets cause people to have better mental and physical health. And the answer is from these types of studies, the answer is nothing. In fact, it may be a case of what's called reverse causation, which is people that are healthier and wealthier uh, to begin with, that have more you know more money and more energy to have a pet. That it's the being healthy that causes people to have pets, rather than the pets that cause them to be healthy. And there's really no studies that have successfully disentangled that
2: yeah occasionally you'll come across like a case report or a personal story of a person who who really was positively affected uh, after they acquired say a dog it helped them get out of their depression or get through their cancer treatment and this individual is sort of changed for life for the better and that's really clear so it makes me wonder there's there's some group of people who really are going to benefit from getting a dog, and maybe we're not asking the question right. Maybe we need to refine where we're looking.
3: I think that's a very good point, and we really don't, we really don't have good data on that. So, for example, let's take a, take a possible you know, t- you know, type of person that might actually benefit from that. Um, oh, and by the way, I saw this in my own parents' Uh, my own parents is they they lived in a rural area and uh, as they aged, they were sort of living living by themselves in a small place in upstate New York and they and they would always have uh, doctrines. they loved doctrines. and th- those doctrines absolutely I'm absolutely convinced imp- you know improved improve their lives, improve, improve their lifestyle, and sort of help keeping them active. But these sorts of anecdotal reports can only take you so, so far, and I'm going to come back to that in a second. But let me mention a variable I think that I think might make a difference, and that is pet attachment. And it might well be that, for example, the people that are more attached to their pets uh, might, be, might be more likely to benefit from the pet. You know, the, one, one of the interesting things about pet attachment is we don't have very good measures of it because everybody tells you that they're very attached to their pets, even though some of them, some of them, some of them are not. But that's the sort of variable, I think, that, that might that might make
2: a difference. That's really interesting. We need our grad students on the question of developing better measures of pet attachment.
3: I, th- I think so, and I remember giving a talk a talk one time, and uh, I was I was basically talking along the same top lines that we're we're talking now about the evidence being so poor for there to be to be an effect on you know pets on mental and physical health. And uh, one of my colleagues uh, raised her hand in the back of the room, and she said, "How do you think everything can be measured?" Yeah. <laughs> and and I she really caught me by and, and I thought, you know. No, I don't think everything can be measured. And so it, it may well be that the lack of, uh, you know, sometimes when we don't find these, these effects, it's because we don't have uh, adequate ways of measuring things like well-being. Yeah.
2: Hal, any concluding thoughts about the pet effect or lack thereof? Yeah, uh,
3: I, think, I think the thing that's most interesting to me is the mismatch between uh, what public be- the public believes about window, about the positive impact of pets on, on their owners, and what the science actually says. And when it gets down to it, I think uh, most of my colleagues actually agree that the evidence for a generalized Positive pet effect on human uh, well-being and, and health is not nearly as strong as what the public has come to believe, largely because of uh, press reports. And you know, people like to read good news stories. And so you know, I, I think I think the sort of take-home message is that um, the, the scientific evidence that we have really is not as strong as most people think
2: for the pet effect. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming back and speaking with us. Hal Herzog uh, writes Animals and Us at Psychology Today. Uh, Nice speaking with you, Hal. Nice to be back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. More with Animals today after this break. this is Lori and it's Peter here
0: and make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com
2: animalstodayradio.com
0: and visit us on Facebook
2: and you can also subscribe on iTunes listen to us on iTunes that's animalstodayradio.com thanks for listening
0: This year, hundreds of racehorses get injured while racing or training. If a horse gets injured or breaks down, it's more likely than not that he or she will end up being shipped off to slaughter. Many people refer to horse racing as a sport, but really it's only betting with animals. And as the horses get less competitive, they're worth more to the owners dead than alive. They are sold off and shipped in overcrowded trucks for hours on end without water to Canada or Mexico where they are slaughtered for food. That is the fate of most racehorses in the United States. While they are alive, they are subjected to overtraining and massive amounts of drugs to mask the pain of chronic and recurrent injuries. The racing industry is cruel from top to bottom, so don't support it, and tell your friends and relatives not to support the industry in any way. Don't bet, don't go to tracks, and avoid parties that celebrate racing. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org.
2: Welcome back to Animals Today. I am so pleased to welcome Bill Neal. He is the writer, producer, and director of the film Long Gone Wild. It's a full length documentary about the plight of captive orcas. Yes, this still continues. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, Peter. Good to be here. Okay, so our listeners and pretty much anyone who's paying attention were all familiar with that film, Blackfish, which really changed things for captive cetaceans and orcas. Uh, So this follows uh, Blackfish. Why did you create this film? Why did we need this film? Well, you're right in that Blackfish did have a profound
4: effect on people's perception of what was going on with uh, captive killer whales. Unfortunately, however, the whales are still there. SeaWorld did make a couple of concessions, um, but the whales are still performing every day, and uh, they still have to perform for their food. So that was one of the reasons that uh, I wanted to produce this documentary, so that people understood that things really haven't changed for the whales there. The other big issue was what's going on with Russia and China. So we can get to that later, I'm sure. But those were the, the, the two primary
2: reasons. Okay, so we're talking about the whales in SeaWorld exclusively. Is that, is that correct? And how many are there? There are 20 in uh, their
4: three parks, and uh, they're all still performing. And they are the only animals that, uh, along with the dolphins, who really have to perform in order to be fed. That's, how, that's the control mechanism, basically, that the trainers
2: use with the whales. And uh, even following the film, there's no real mechanism to make life better for those whales. They're still in very small enclosures. They can't dive, right? So it, it is what it is.
4: Exactly. Yeah. They are, uh, you know, chlorinated tanks. And of course, as you know, killer whales have uh, incredible uh, echolocation uh, capabilities, which are essentially um, useless in a concrete tank because all they get is reverberations bouncing back. So many of the wonderful skills that they have, behaviors that uh, that they exhibit
2: in the wild uh, are, are completely muted in uh, in a concrete tank. Yeah, it must just make them insane. Um, the film uh, is really available everywhere right now. Anyone can view Long Gone Wild just by going online and finding it.
4: Yes, if they go to our website, www.longgonewild.com, under the Watch tab, uh, there's a whole, uh, all of the video on demand platforms are carrying the film, including Amazon Prime. So if they have 100 million members. So if you're a member of Amazon Prime, uh, it's part of their package. So you can watch it for free, actually.
2: And uh, listeners, I'll tell you that uh, luminaries uh, highlighted in the film, including Dr. Lori Marino and Rick O'Barry and Naomi Rose, Charles Vinnick, Stephen Wise, and Richard Bloom, all make their appearances. So it's really got the leaders in uh, cetacean uh, advocacy. Bill, so you mentioned uh, China and Russia, and watching the film, I am somewhat familiar with the issues, but it was shocking the degree of what's going on in, in these countries. Uh, please explain.
4: Well, China uh, has gone on a massive building program to uh, uh, address the uh, explosion in their um, middle-class population, and they have built uh, more than 80 uh, marine theme parks over the past several years. They're going up practically on every corner. And in a few of those parks, not many so far, but in a few of those parks, they have uh, killer whales. They're, they've actually begun performing in Shanghai, hmm. and um, uh, the Russians have been live capturing orcas and selling them to the Chinese for eight million or seven million dollars a whale. So it, it's uh, it's a very disturbing development where in the West, there has been some progress. As I mentioned, SeaWorld has made a couple of concessions, though the whales are still there. But in the East, it, it is really a dire situation that, that appears to be only
2: getting worse. And when you pluck a whale out of the ocean, you really disrupt the whole family unit. It's really damaging, isn't it? terribly damaging.
4: They're very social animals. They, they stay in their pods pretty much for life. And so to take one whale out of that family or two or three whales out of that family, yes, it completely destroys their whole structure.
2: Okay, Bill, let's just go back to the whales at SeaWorld in uh, the United States. They need a place to go. So uh, what's the prospects of that?
4: Uh, that's the good news in this story. The, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Dr. Lori Marino and Charles Vinnick, who are heading up the Whale Sanctuary Project. This is a group of uh, orca experts from around the world and scientists and various other people of expertise. And they are very close to naming a site, which would be Seaside Sanctuary, that essentially would be a cove. That would be netted off on one end, so that the whales would get 24/7 care. They'd be fed. They'd have veterinarian care, but they would be in a in their natural habitat in a space roughly 300 times the size of a concrete tank. And so, while well, they could jump over those nets, if they <clears throat> excuse me, if they wanted to. Um, the whales don't. And so uh, because they can't just be dropped back into the ocean, they're not prepared to hunt and uh, and all of those things that they would need to do to survive. So this is the next best thing.
2: Yeah, the film is Long Gone Wild. We've been speaking with Bill Neal. Okay, so tell listeners what they can do to help get rid of whales in captivity. Well, as we say
4: at the end of the film, uh, Peter, we... Uh, Several of the experts, including Rick O'Berry, uh, whom you mentioned uh, who listeners may remember from the Cove, Rick's mantra is don't buy a ticket yeah and we have several of our experts repeat that and I think if there's one thing that people can do is not buy a ticket and and make sure that they pass that on to their children and friends and family and so on, that, that that's the number one thing. Because if, if people don't go to these parks, they're not going to be able to, to exist.
2: Well, Bill, thank you very much for creating such a compelling film. It's long gone wild. We look forward to speaking with you real soon.
4: Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it.
0: And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.